the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we'll talk with uh, Sid Brestel. He's a retired pastor and author of God in His Own Image, loving God for who He is, not who we want Him to be. That's coming up later this hour. We're also winding our way through some of the day's news. Well, I know there's a lot going on. The president is still uh, out of the country. Um, This marks this evening. It's actually come and gone, essentially, in the area where it actually happened. marks the beginning of D-Day. But I wanted to mention one thing that I had the opportunity to attend yesterday. It was Southwest Christian School's kindergarten graduation. And um, I have to admit, my five-year-old grandniece, Anaya was uh, among the group of uh, graduates there. But I have to tell you, I was so thrilled. These kids have learned so much in the space of the first year. Now, this is Southwest Christian School. I know there are kindergarten graduations going on all over the area. But to hear these little kids memorize scripture to explain what the gospel means, they talked about how many continents they are, there are and where they are and how many oceans. And I was really impressed by all that these kids learned over the course of one year. So I just have to say how proud I am of my little niece who is now officially in the first grade because she graduated with her peers uh, last night at Southwest Christian School. Uh, Congratulations to the uh, graduating kindergarten class of 2019, who will in 2031 be a group of kids to to be reckoned with. These were bright uh, kids, and they did a great job in their graduation, and they just, they know a lot of stuff. I know uh, your daughter, uh, Clark, is going to be in first grade in the fall as well, right? Isn't that right? Your daughter's going to be in first grade? She's going to be in kindergarten. I don't know why I thought she was already in kindergarten. No, I'm confused. Anyway, um, just proud of my little niece and her kindergarten graduation. Do they have a ceremony where she's going to kindergarten? Do you know? I know when I was in kindergarten, I could barely figure out you know, how to get to my house from the side street. But these kids, they, they know a lot. They were mentioning all kinds of things. I didn't have a clue even existed when I was that age. So anyway, I was very impressed. Well, taking a look at some of the headlines that might have broader appeal, President Trump in a series of tweets early this morning uh, called out the corrupt media for reporting on the paltry protesting turnout during his trip to the UK and said if there was actually um, a fair news accounting about his success in office, he would be dominating in the polls. I keep hearing that there would be massive rallies against me in the UK, but it was quite the opposite. The big crowds, which the corrupt media hates to show, were those that gathered in support of the USA and me, he posted. Thousands of Londoners lined the streets on Tuesday to protest his visit with the Queen, including those carrying a giant baby blimp Trump. Earlier, the president sat down with Pierce Morgan on ITV's Good Morning Britain and clarified controversial comments last week about Meghan Markle in the Sun British tabloid. Trump again said he wasn't calling Markle nasty, but rather was just surprised to hear 
uh, her critical comments about him. And he had followed those uh, as the audio revealed with well wishes for her and said she would do a great job in her new role. With Republicans threatening to block his move to impose tariffs on Mexican imports over the migration crisis at the southern border, President Trump blasted Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer for suggesting he would ultimately back down from his plan. Can you imagine crying Chuck Schumer saying out loud for all to hear that I'm bluffing with respect to putting tariffs on Mexico? He went on to say, what a creep. Uh, He would rather have our country fail with drug and immigration than give Republicans a win. But he gave Mexico bad advice. No bluff. The president tweeted. Who would have imagined the president, the sitting president of the United States tweeting, which is, of course, is a unique thing in and of itself. What a creep. Anyway, the president has vowed to impose a 5% tariff on Mexican imports next week unless the country does more to stem illegal uh, migration. In fact, Mexican officials are in the United States as of this moment uh, negotiating um, and avoiding that possibility. Lawmakers and business allies have worried publicly that the tariffs would derail a long-promised United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, a rewrite of the North American Free Trade Agreement that Trump had promised to replace. All sides, including officials from Mexico, a meeting with Trump negotiators in Washington this week have remained hopeful that high-level talks would ease the president away from this threat. We'll see what happens. Dems and um, Barr are ready to negotiate after overboard subpoena requests. That's what the headline read. Hours after the Department of Justice slammed House Democrats for planning a contempt vote against Attorney General William Barr and charged that Democrats had privately admitted their subpoena requests were overboard, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler announced late yesterday that he's open to negotiating with the department without conditions. The turn of events reopened the possibility that the Attorney General's contempt vote may be postponed or canceled if both sides return to the negotiating table. Nadler, however, pointedly refused to cancel the planned contempt vote prior to beginning any new negotiations as the department had demanded. And lawyers for a majority, uh, excuse me, a Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High Resources Officer have vowed to fight the charges he faces for failure to enter the school during the 2018 mass shooting. Joseph DeRuzzo III, lawyer for Scott Peterson, said in a statement, we will vigorously defend against these spurious charges that lack basis in fact and law. Specifically, Mr. Peterson cannot reasonably be prosecuted because he was not a caregiver, which is defined as a parent, adult household member, or other person responsible for a child's welfare. Peterson has been charged with seven counts of neglect of a child, three counts of culpable negligence, and one of perjury after a 15-month investigation according to a news release from Florida authorities. The charges carry a combined potential prison sentence of nearly 100 years for the officer, um, blasted by many critics as the coward of Broward. Well, following a variety of magazine reports that claimed Jesse Smollett might be returning to Empire for its sixth and final season, the show's co-creator and executive producer Lee Daniels immediately shot down any speculation. This is not factual. Jesse will not be returning to Empire. Daniels tweeted, instantly dispelling any rumors. Smollett's character, Jamal Lyon, was written out of the final episode of season five of Empire in May. Fox announced that its hit drama would end after season six and that there were still no plans to bring back Smollett's character. President Donald Trump and First Lady Melania Trump joined Queen Elizabeth II and more than 300 D-Day veterans in Portsmouth on Wednesday for a national ceremony of remembrance on the 75th anniversary of the Allied military invasion, remembered as the turning point of World War II. 
course, that was D-Day. That really is the essence of the invitation for the president to come to the UK to mark the occasion of the 75th anniversary. And despite a veto threat from the president, House Democrats on Tuesday passed a bill that would provide pathway to citizen citizenship rather for an estimated two million undocumented immigrants whose parents brought them to the United States as children. And from October 1st last year until the end of May, a total of 18,051 refugees have been resettled in the United States and almost eight in 10 self-identify as Christian. House Democrats uh, moved forward uh, to next week of an important vote to hold the U.S. Attorney General uh, and White House Counsel Dan, uh, Don McGahn in contempt of Congress. I failed to mention that earlier. Don McGahn as well, despite signaling two weeks ago that they were moving away from uh, such a vote. And China's government lashed out on Tuesday at Secretary of State Mike Pompeo for commemorating the heroic protests leading to the violent crackdown at Beijing Tiananmen Square in 1989, warning that its critics would end up in the ash heap of history. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with uh, retired pastor Sid Brestel, author of God in His Own Image. Looking forward to that conversation. Well, the Trump administration yesterday ended the most popular forms of U.S. travel to Cuba, banning cruise ships and a heavily used category of educational travel in an attempt to cut off cash to the island's communist government. And a 17-year-old Dutch girl who sought to be euthanized after she had the pain of being raped and molested as a child had become unbearable, was reportedly allowed to die at home this weekend. It was a case of euthanasia. She was not uh, physically ill. She was not disabled. She was depressed. The Maine legislature voted on Tuesday to legalize assisted suicide. The bill now goes to Democratic Governor Janet Mills, who has 10 days to act on the bill and hasn't indicated whether she will let the bill become law. Her office said she has not yet taken a position. And on this day in 2004, Ronald Wilson Reagan, the 40th president of the United States, dies in Los Angeles at 93 after a long battle with Alzheimer's disease. On this day in 1981, the Centers for Disease Control reports that five homosexuals in Los Angeles had been had come down with a rare kind of pneumonia. Uh, They are the first recognized cases of what later became known as AIDS. And on this day in 1968, Senator Robert Kennedy is shot and mortally wounded after claiming victory in California's Democratic presidential primary at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Assassin Sirhan Bashiri Sirhan is arrested at the scene. On this day in 1967, the Six-Day War erupts in the Middle East as Israel, anticipating a possible attack by its Arab neighbors, launches a series of preemptive airfield strikes that destroyed nearly the entire Egyptian Air Force. Syria, Jordan, and Iraq immediately enter that conflict. And on this day in 1933, the United States goes off the gold standard. And finally, on this day in 1917, about 10 million American men between the ages of 21 and 31 begin registering for the draft in World War II. Today, of course, we mark the um, beginning of D-Day, the assault that changed the course of the war, um, which began at night under the cover of darkness. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. But Queen Elizabeth II, the world's uh, and world leaders, I should say, including U.S. President Donald Trump, gathered to 
uh, Wednesday evening local time on the south coast of England to honor the troops who risked and sacrificed their lives 75 years ago on D-Day, a bloody but ultimately triumphant turning point in World War II. Across the channel, American and British paratroopers dropped onto northwestern France. They scaled cliffs beside Normandy beaches, recreated the daring, costly invasion that helped liberate Europe from Nazi corruption. With a number of veterans of World War II dwindling, the guests of honor at the international ceremony in Portsmouth were several hundred men, now in their 90s, who served in that conflict. And the 93-year-old British monarch, also a member of what has been called the greatest generation. The queen, who served as an army mechanic during the war, said that when she attended the 60th anniversary commemoration of D-Day 15 years ago, many thought it might be uh, the last such event. But the wartime generation, my generation, is resilient, she said, striking an unusually personal note. The heroism, courage, and sacrifice of those who lost their lives will never be forgotten, the monarch said. It is with humility and pleasure on behalf of the entire country, indeed the whole world, that I say to you all, thank you. Several hundred World War II veterans, aged 91 to 101, attended ceremony at Portsmouth, the English port city, where many of the troops embarked for Normandy on the 5th of June, 1944. Many will recreate their journey with less danger and more comfort by crossing the channel by ship to Normandy overnight. They're due to attend uh, commemorations Thursday uh, in uh, Bayeux, the first major town liberated by Allied troops after D-Day. Mixing history lessons, entertainment, and solemn remembrances, the ceremony at Portsmouth was a large-scale spectacle involving troops, dancers, martial bands, uh, culminating in a military fly past. But the stars of the show were the elderly veterans of that campaign who said they were surprised by all the attention. They were just doing their jobs. I was just a small part in a very big machine, said one 99-year-old John Jenkins, a veteran from Portsmouth, who received a standing ovation as he addressed the event. You never forget your comrades because we were all in it together, he said. It is right that the courage and sacrifice of so many is being honored 75 years on. We must never forget. Of course, that's a looming question. Will future generations uh, comprehend the nature of this undertaking and remember the event, which kicked off two days of D-Day anniversary observances, paid tribute to the troops who shaped history during the dangerous mission to reach beachheads and fight in German-occupied France. D-Day saw more than 150,000 Allied troops land on the beaches of Normandy and northwest France on the 6th of June, 1944, carried by 7,000 boats. The Battle of Normandy, codenamed Operation Overlord, was a turning point in the war and helped bring Nazi Germany's defeat in May of 1945. The ceremony on Wednesday brought together presidents, prime ministers, other representatives of more than a dozen countries that fought alongside Britain in Normandy. The leader of the country that was the enemy in 1944, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, also attended, a symbol of Europe's post-war reconciliation and transformation. Russian President Vladimir Putin, who attended the 70th anniversary commemorations in France five years ago, uh, was not being invited. Uh, Russia was not involved in D-Day, but was instrumental in defeating the Nazis on the Eastern Front. The ceremony sought to take people back in time with world leaders reading the words of participants in that conflict. President Trump read a prayer that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt delivered in a radio address on the 6th of June, 1944, extolling the mighty endeavor Allied troops were engaged in. Prime Minister uh, Theresa May read a letter written by Captain Norman Skinner of the Royal Army Service Corps of, to his wife Gladys on the 3rd of June, 1944, a few days before the invasion. He was killed the day after D-Day. 
Although I would give anything to be back with you, I have not yet had any wish at all to back down from the job we have to do, he wrote. French President Emmanuel Macron read from a letter sent by a young resistance fighter, Henri Ferret, uh, before he was executed at the age of 16. I am going to die for my country. I want France to be free and the French to be happy, he said. This from a 16-year-old. Well, the ceremony ended with the singer performing the wartime hit We'll Meet Again, as many of the elderly assembled veterans sang along with tears. Then World War II Spitfire and Hurricane Fighter Jets, modern-day typhoons, and the Royal Army, or I should say Royal Air Force Red Arrows uh, aerobatic units swooped over the dignitaries, veterans, and large crowds of spectators. The crowd beyond the security barriers loved the planes, but loved the veterans even more. Whenever their images came up on the big screen, people cheered. The former servicemen had reacted to such shows of attention with humility and surprise, as many believed they had been forgotten. What happened to me is not important. I am not a hero. I served with men who were, said Les Hammond. He's 94. He landed at Juneau Beach with the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers. I'm very lucky I'm a survivor. On Thursday, the focus shifts to France, where commemorations will be held at simple military cemeteries near the Normandy beaches. Events in France began early Wednesday morning with U.S. Army Rangers climbing the jagged limestone cliffs of Normandy's Pointe du Hoc to honor the men who scaled them under fire 75 years ago. Under fire. They were recreating a journey taken in 1944 by the U.S. Army's 2nd and 5th Ranger Battalions to destroy Nazi guns atop that cliff, helping prepare the way for Allied troops to land at the coast. Elsewhere in Normandy, parachutists, they jumped from C-47 transporters and World War II colors and other aircraft, aiming for fields of uh, wildflowers on the outskirts of uh, one early objective for Allied troops. Among the jumpers was American D-Day veteran Tom Rice, 97. He jumped into Normandy with thousands of other paratroopers in 1944 and recalled it as the worst jump I ever had. I hope today's jump was better for him. Well, like many other veterans, Rice said, no relation, that he remains troubled by the war. We did a lot of destruction, damage. We chased the Germans out and coming back here is a matter of closure, he said. You can close the issue now. This 97-year-old had been there at the time the destruction was necessary and now returned with the German chancellor there well, that symbolized the reconciliation and restoration that has since occurred. Tomorrow, marking the 75th anniversary of D-Day, June 6, 1944. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we return, we'll talk with uh, retired pastor Sid Brestel. He's the author of God in His Own Image, loving God for who He is, not who we want Him to be or might imagine Him to be or might fear He is. All of that coming up. When we return, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, it's easy to speak to others about Jesus who cared for the poor, healed the sick, preached love and justice for the least of these. But what about the God who tells the Israelites to wage war and kill entire people groups? or threatens exile and then delivers, or sends people to hell. Can these really be the same God? These are questions my next guest asks and answers. Well, the simple answer is yes. God, in his own image, his book, takes you on a journey through the Bible exploring God's true nature. Uh, You'll study instances of great mercy and great severity, and by the end, you'll begin to see why both God's compassion and his wrath are necessary, important, and even beautiful. Get to know the God who is both lion and lamb, both judge and father, both kind and severe, 
and perfect in every way. My next guest is Sid Brestel. He is a retired pastor who served a number of congregations for nearly 50 years. He's taught biblical classes at Kilns College in Bend, Oregon, and is passionate about creating opportunities for lay people to receive biblical and theological training. He's ministered in several countries, and God has given him a passion to reclaim and defend both his grace and his holiness and wrath. The book that he has written, something of a reluctant author, is titled God in His Own Image, Loving God for Who He Is, Not Who We Want Him to Be. I should also mention he is a graduate of uh, Western Seminary, so we're, uh, we're talking to a, a homebody, if you will. Sid Brestel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Georgine. What a privilege to be on the air with you. Oh, thank you, and it's I a privilege. 13 to... years. I pastored 13 years in Portland, so we've we kind of belong there, too. So you are back home then, huh? <laughs> I am. Wonderful. Well, I so appreciate your book. I spent an entire year, it's been two years now, studying the book of of um, uh, Revelation. I've spent an entire year uh, studying the, the people and the promises uh, from the early books of the Bible uh, in order to better understand who God is and who he reveals himself to be, to try to dispel some of the misunderstandings I might uh, hold of his character and um, who we know him to be from Scripture. And your book is really designed to help us better understand what God says about himself and how he wants us to understand him uh, in real life, if you will. Yes, and I, I wanted to get that down on a lower shelf. I'm not writing to the theologian. I'm not writing to the professors. I'm trying to write to the average person in the church who just needs to know who God is and uh, accept him as he is. One of the things that you um, encourage your readers in the preface to consider is Romans 11.22, when Paul writes, a note then, the kindness and the severity of God. Now, this seems like a contradiction. How can both things be true? And yet they are. We grapple with how to understand how both things are simultaneously true and reflect a a holy and good uh, and merciful God. Is that the the heart of the challenge that we face in trying to understand who God really is? I, I think you've hit it right on the head. And that really was the uh, key to writing the book to begin with, that verse. Because that word severity only appears in that verse alone, and it appears twice in that verse. God, uh, Paul could have used words like wrath or anger. Why did he choose that one? So it tweaked my curiosity, and it was the research and the word study that then led to writing the book. And I really think that's the struggle we have today. Uh, we live in a consumer-driven society. It has influenced the churches for the best part, or the biggest part. And we want a God that's safe, one that we can manage. Uh, we like to talk about His grace. We like to talk about His mercy, His love, His goodness. And those are good things, and we need to talk about them. But grace and mercy, Georgine, have no meaning at all if God isn't also holy and just, and uh, capable of wrath and anger. That's why I need mercy, mm-hmm. and that's why I really enjoy grace. And I think today we want to make God safe. Uh, I, I think of C.S. Lewis, when he speaks about uh, Aslan, the lion, and the, 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 uh, the, <laughs> the child asks, is he safe? The answer is, he's not safe, but he is good. Mm-hmm. And so the book may sound like it's all about God's wrath. It's not. I really end up talking about taste and see. He is good. Even in his anger, he's good. As I was listening to the uh, um, commercials and such prior to me coming on, it talked about one in seven women being molested or abused. Mm. If bad things happen and no one gets angry, the opposite of the anger is apathy. I don't want a God who's apathetic. When little children are hurt, when the women are abused, when people who have 
no defense harmed. I want somebody who's going to stand up and defend. And God, throughout the Old and the New Testament, talks about uh, helping the poor, the widow, looking out for them. So he is a God that even in his anger, it's not a temper tantrum. It's a righteous response, evil and wrong. One of the mistakes that we make, and you use this uh, quote, someone once noted that God made us in his image, and ever since, we've tried to do God a favor by making him in our own. God is so other that it's difficult for us to understand how it's possible for two seemingly opposite things to exist in a single uh, a single being. Is, is part of our problem that we, um, being made in the image of God, find it very difficult to acknowledge that we are incapable of fully comprehending all that he is, and yet he reveals uh, aspects of his character in order to be understood, and we should strive to do that because that's what he longs for from us, is to seek him as he is rather than the image that we would prefer him to be in. That's right, and if he doesn't reveal himself to us, then we're up on our own to Mm -hmm. create him the way we want him to be. He has revealed himself to us in his word, in creation. But in creation, I, I see some of the awesome attributes of his creativity, his beauty, his love for uh, beauty. But it's in the word and in the person of Christ, I see that he's a person who wants a relationship with us. He's a father who loves us. He's not an abusive father. He's not an absent father. Uh, he's, he's a God that cares. And yet he's a God that um, expects obedience honors obedience, and will discipline when uh, disobedient. But the discipline is always, again, done in in love. I think through the Older Testament, and he talks to Israel uh, as his child and sometimes as as his bride. And when Israel goes out and creates other gods, that is, the gods of the nations around them, that's when God's righteous anger really comes out. The 70 years captivity, the Assyrian captivity of the northern tribes were a result of his people ignoring how he had revealed himself and bowing down to something they had made with their own hands. And I share in the book an analogy to, to create an idol and bow down and say, you're my creator, is as insulting as walking into the Sistine Chapel and seeing that great fresco, all those great frescoes painted by Michelangelo and say, a kindergartner could have done better. That's an insult. Mm-hmm. No wonder God responds to idolatry as he does in the Old Testament. Well, let's talk about the... You know, I think... Go ahead. You know, I think... Go ahead. I, I think what happens today, too, is... Uh, well, let me use an analogy. I would never, as a pastor, invite somebody to, to, to come to the church and uh, tell the people, make an idol out of wood and bow down to it. But if I don't tell them the truth about God, both the kinder and the gentler, but also the severe attributes, then I have essentially done the same thing. I've told them, here's an idol, go worship it. It may not be made with hands, it may not be made out of wood, but it's not God. Mm -hmm. You use the phrase Older Testament. Let's talk about that, because there are many believers today who have simply jettisoned the, in quotes, Old Testament as being the uh, a different God than the New Testament Jesus that we see. Uh, and they, they delineate between the two as one being no longer relevant and this new and improved version in the New Testament. Um, that's the God that they want to know without taking into account that the scriptures, as you use the phrase, Older and Newer Testament, um, speak of one truth, of one God, uh, whose character is consistent. I appreciate you bringing that up. And it was uh, one of my professors at Western, mm-hmm. Dr. Ronald Allen, who used the phrase older, newer. And so I picked up on that. 
Recently, I read some other person saying first and second. The problem with saying older te- Old Testament, it could communicate old, outdated, and now new means it's up to date. Uh, the old one has been cast aside. We have but one book. Every one of the 66 books adds something to the story, whether it be in the older chapter of the library, section of the library, or the newer section. It's, it's really wrong for people. I think it's absurd when people say, I, I love the sweet Jesus of the New Testament. I don't like the angry God of the old. Same person. And if they really say that, and, and they, they haven't read the New Testament, and mm-hmm. I don't see a meek, mild Jesus taking a whip and cleansing the temple and, and upsetting carts and driving out the money changers. I don't see a, a gentle Jesus calling the Pharisees and the legalists the whitewashed uh, tombstones and snakes. <laughs> And then you said you spent a year going or two years going through Revelation. You read through Revelation, it's the revelation of a person, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Boy, if you can't, you can't read that book and not say that he's severe. As we come to the end of part of Revelation, his severity is, is, is just outstanding. Um, with the sword from his mouth, you know, obviously it's, type, it's uh, symbolism, but riding on a horse with a blood-stained robe, king of kings and lord of lords. Um, I don't. I wonder if they didn't read the New Testament. If they say that I love the sweet Jesus in the New Testament, I don't like the angry God of the Old. Maybe they watched the movie, but <laughs> I don't think they read the book. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. In the preface, my guest um, Sid Brestel writes that. Um, contemporary Christian culture has diminished, if not abandoned, biblical teaching about God's harsher attributes. An angry God doesn't sell well in our consumer-driven culture. But God is not an item on the shelf trying to appeal to our preferences. We don't have to sell him or market him. He is who he is. Neither are God's attributes a box of chocolates. We can't pick or choose our favorites. We'll continue our review of God in his own image, loving God for who he is, not who he, uh, rather not who we want him to be. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Sid Brestel. He is a retired pastor. He's pastored here in the Portland area, is a graduate of Western Seminary, and the author of God in His Own Image, Loving God for Who He Is, Not Who We Want Him to Be. What are some of the more dangerous misunderstandings of who we think God is um, rather than who God reveals himself to be? Good question, and uh, in the book I try to give some pictures, word pictures, to help explain that. Uh, some people might see him as a stern taskmaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just uh, abusive. He wants you to you know, work, 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 work a little harder. Uh, I grew up with what I would call the cosmic cop God. It was a very legalistic church. My dad was a pastor. He was also a police officer, so I'm a loser on both sides there uh, with my peers. Cosmic cop. When I'm in trouble, he can't get there fast enough, but I don't want him looking over my shoulder. I don't want him always spying on me. Every time I want to do something, he's there to to catch me. You can't relate too well with that kind of a God. Uh, Sometimes the absent landlord. And this this is a hard one because maybe all of us have been there sometimes when we're going through trials and pain and suffering and we pray and we pray and the prayers bounce off of the, the ceiling and, and God is absent. That's, that's what I would call the absent landlord. And it's interesting that in the Psalms, the number one genre, the most common genre in the Psalms is, are the Psalms of lament. Why, oh, why God? Where are you, God? 
how long, God? So sometimes we might see God as that absent landlord. And there's another type of God that I think some people create, and that's what I call the doting grandfather. Uh, doesn't matter what you do, boys will be boys. God is too good to send anybody to hell. He just, uh, he just has to forgive us because that's what God has to do. That's what grandpas do. Uh, perhaps today we would say there, there are those maybe in the more new age type religion that God is just a, a energy or force. Star Wars, let the force be with you. That's a pantheistic God. It's not a personal God. So I just kind of use the caricatures mm-hmm. to try to get pictures in people's minds of how we sometimes try to make God out. And he's, he's none of those. He's, he's far more than that. When God introduced himself to Moses there on the mountain, that's a great journey. Moses starts out totally frightened at the burning bush. Uh, take off your shoes. It's holy ground. And then God almost kills them on the road to, uh, uh, on the path to Exodus uh, because he hasn't circumcised his sons. He hasn't kept a covenant, a sign of the covenant. But Moses becomes so familiar with God that he says, I want to see everything. I want to see your glory. But when God introduces himself to Moses, he starts out with the gentler, kinder attributes. And then he turns and he says, but I will punish. And so he's both. He's both that forgiving, gracious, loving, always. But he's also that God who will not compromise with sin, will not allow his character to be slandered, insulted with idols, and he will respond. But again, he always responds rightly. That's what righteousness is. He responds in the right way. Not the way I might think he should mm-hmm. do it, but he knows what's right. When God makes decisions, uh, I have to remember, it's his courtroom. This is his land. This is his world. He's the creator. He knows so much more than I do. I can only see one little moment. I can't see the next moment. I forget about the last moment. Uh, but God sees it all. I can trust him. I was meeting with a man recently over the last year who lost his wife. I mentioned him in the book, but uh, a light went on about a month ago in one of our meetings over breakfast. And I simply said, sometimes we just need to trust him. I don't need answers. I just need to trust him. And I think that's what God wants us to do with him, trust him. He reveals himself to us. We say we love him. We say we trust him. Let's just live it. Trust him. What do you say to those who are perfectly satisfied with only Uh, embracing one facet of God's character without the more troubling facets that require us to perhaps dig a little deeper in Scripture. For example, as I uh, studied with Bible Study Fellowship through the Scriptures and some of the nations that Israel was commanded to destroy, if you look at the Scriptures and you go back to the very early part of Genesis, there are references to those nations, and you see the mercy of God giving um, decades, hundreds of years in some cases, before God exercises judgment. There had been warnings for for nations and so on. It's a much bigger picture that has more detail. What do you say to those who are content to say, you know, I'm only interested in this facet of God's character? What do we miss out on? And how does that make our Christian walk uh, anemic if we are not willing to embrace all of who God is and try to at least understand him? I don't want to sound trite, Georgine, but I would say to them, you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping an idol. Something you've created, maybe, maybe not out of wood, maybe not out of stone, but in your, in, in your mind, you've created something less than God, an idol. And that's dangerous. I, I, was, re- I was listening this afternoon on, on, on YouTube uh, to an interview with uh, Eugene uh, Peterson, 
And he made a statement in there which kind of shocked me because he's such a gentle man. But he said, a consumer-driven church is an anti-Christ church. Those are harsh words. Mm -hmm. But if I try to reconnect or re-describe God to fit what's popular, what's politically correct, Peterson uses harsh words. That's not Christ. That's anti-Christ. So I think it's time that we need to tell these people, back off, man. That's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's not only wrong, but it's dangerous. Jesus praying in John 17, and he says, he speaks to the Father, you have given me authority uh, over to give eternal life to all that you have given me. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Eternal life is to know God as he is. It's a matter of life and death, knowing God, accepting God as he is. What role um, does and should God's Word and His Holy Spirit play in helping us when we have a willing and open heart to to better understand who God is as He reveals Himself? I think when we have that open and willing heart to know and love and understand God, His Word will be opened to us. The Spirit will communicate to us through His Word, will affirm in our hearts. So I think it starts again with that hunger. Uh, I, I use a phrase in the book, taste and see, and I just talk about the proof is in the in the pudding. Well, just have a hunger to know God. That honors God. I think if he sees a heart, even in the darkest point of Africa, he's hungry to know the real God. Like we're reading about Muslims today who are hungry, and Jesus appears to them. We read about it more and more these days. Uh, if somebody's genuinely searching with an open heart, God will reveal himself to us, whether it be in a vision for a Muslim or whether it be in his word through a searching Christian or a searching American who's pre-Christian yet to believe. I think we have to trust his word. I think he honors the heart and a willing, a willingness to surrender. Yeah. Lord, I accept however you reveal yourself in the word. Now I'm going to open your word. You show me who you are. And he will. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love that you make the reference someone who has a genuine um, heart to know God and God will honor that as we pursue him. Yeah. Well, certainly our conversation doesn't uh, reflect all that's in your book, God in his own image. I appreciate so much how you help us better understand perhaps some of our flawed thinking and our unwillingness to look at the full portrait that God uh, provides for us in his word. But the book will help uh, all of us uh, take up the challenge and the joy of knowing God as he reveals himself. The subtitle, Loving God for Who He Is, Not Who We Want Him to Be, and the book is uh, published by Moody. Thank you so much for joining us today. I sure appreciate it. Thank you, Georgine. Again, Sid Brestel, our guest. Thank you so much. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing, engineering a portion of the program, as well as Clark Hilton. So glad to have you uh, with us this second hour. Well, there's a new study out that says Americans view fake news to be a bigger threat, a bigger problem than terrorism. Well, that's probably because we haven't had a big event of late. Well, American view, uh, Americans rather view made-up news and information as a bigger problem than other critical issues, including terrorism, immigration, climate change, and racism, according to a new survey from Pew Research. The survey finds that Americans feel more worried today about fake news because it's undermining their trust in key institutions like government and the media. Now, this uh, certainly does set up a scenario in which the events that we read about in the latter uh, part of the New Testament, uh, the culmination of time, if you will, and how people are misinformed, misled, deceived, and so on. This would certainly make it a lot easier 
uh, for that to happen. But uh, the research doesn't focus on that. I'm just making an editorial comment. The only issues that rank higher than made up news and information as very big problems in the country today are drug addiction and the affordability of health care, the U.S. political system and the income gap. Well, by the numbers, an overwhelming majority of Americans, that's about 68 percent, believe made up news and information has a big impact on their trust in government, according to the survey. More than half or 54 percent of Americans say it impacts their confidence in other Americans. More than half or 51 percent say it impacts the ability of political leaders to get work done. Well, between the lines, while most Americans blame political leaders and activist groups for creating misinformation over journalists, most say the news media is the most responsible for fixing the problem. Republicans blame journalists more for the issue than Democrats, according to the survey. Again, no big surprise there. Well, misinformation has always existed in various forms, but the Internet era has made the problem harder to stop in real time. According to the poll, more than half of Americans sometimes come across fake news online. Many report changing their Internet habits to lessen their overall intake of fake news as a result. And of course, we don't always know the source of the news and information we are digesting. Fake news and misinformation are abstract terms that give people in power, such as the president, uh, members of the media, and so on, room to weaponize the term in order to uh, denounce news they don't like. This has dramatically exposed more Americans to the debate around the problems it causes for society and likely impacts their views of it as an important issue. So what's next? Don't count on the public to be optimistic about the issue ahead of 2020. The majority of those surveyed said they think the problem will get worse over time. Well, a former Parkland, Florida school safety officer who failed to confront the gunman when 17 people were fatally shot at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School last year was arrested today on multiple charges, including child neglect and perjury. Scott Peterson, who worked as a security officer at the campus, was charged with seven counts of neglect of a child and three counts of culpable negligence, one count of perjury. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement says the charges carry a maximum potential sentence of 96 years. I should say 96 Uh, and a half years in state prison, according to the Broward State Attorney's Office. Lawyers for Peterson denounced the charges as unprecedented and spurious. The state's actions appear to be nothing more than a thinly veiled attempt at politically motivated retribution against Mr. Peterson. His attorney said in a statement to NBC News, the charges against Mr. Peterson should be dismissed immediately. Well, 17 students, teachers and staff were killed in that shooting on February 14th, 2018. I remember that day well. Another 17 were injured. A former student, Nicholas Cruz, is charged with 17 counts of murder and 17 counts of attempted murder, the actual shooter. Cruz has uh, pled not guilty, although his public defenders say he would plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence. Prosecutors want the death penalty. Peterson is 56. He is the uh, law enforcement officer on duty at the time, who was armed, was the only other person at the school with a gun when the shooter opened fire. He was taken into custody in Broward County after a 15-month investigation that showed he refused to investigate the source of the gunshots, retreated during the um, active shooting while victims were being shot and directed other law enforcement who arrived on scene to remain 500 feet away from the building. 
That's what state law enforcement are um, reporting. Well, Department Commissioner Rick Swearingen said in a news release that Peterson did absolutely nothing to stop the shooting, and that cost people their lives. There could be no excuse for his complete inaction and no question that his inaction cost lives, he went on to say. Well, the state's attorney's office said the law enforcement department interviewed more than 180 witnesses as well as reviewed video surveillance during the investigation. All the facts related to Mr. Peterson's failure to act during the MSD massacre clearly warranted both termination of employment and criminal charges. It's never too late for accountability and justice, Broward County Sheriff Gregory Tony added. Well, Peterson, who was fired Tuesday from the Broward County Sheriff's Office, said during a June 2018 interview with NBC Today that he did not go into the building because of miscommunication. I didn't get it right, he said, but it wasn't because of some, oh, I don't want to go into that building. Oh, I don't want to face somebody in there. It wasn't that at all. Those are my kids in there, he added. I never would have sat there and let the kids get slaughtered. Never. End quote. Well, Peterson was booked into Broward County Jail on $102,000 bond. Under terms of the bond, he must wear a GPS monitor. Surrender his passport is prohibited from possessing firearms while the case is pending. President of the Broward Sheriff's Office Deputies Association told NBC News on Tuesday that the union was has concerns with the child neglect charges due to the caveat that someone must be a caretaker. Does that mean now that any time an officer is assigned detail that involves children around the country, are they now caretakers? I worry about future officers, not just Scott Peterson, being charged with overzealous prosecutors with child neglect when we're not the caretakers. Well, Fred uh, Guttenberg, whose daughter Jamie died in the Parkland shooting, told Peterson to, well, it was unflattering. We'll put it that way. You could have saved some of the 17, he said. You could have saved my daughter. You did not. And then you lied about it. And you deserve the misery coming your way, end quote. Well, the brother of Meadow Pollock, another student who died in the attack, said on Twitter that he hoped Peterson spends the rest of his life in prison. He cowered in Parkland while my sister died defenseless and lied about the future, uh, about his failure, rather, to confront the shooter. Uh, This uh, sibling of a shooting victim uh, has said. So the uh, sheriff's deputy who fled Parkland uh, during that shooting is now being held and faces charges that could uh, result in his spending the remainder of his life in prison. Dennis Prager, writing for um, the Patriot Post, uh, asked the question, why many, why so many mass shootings? Uh, he says that if you ask the right questions, you might find out. Well, this past weekend, he w- re- uh, referred back to Americans who learned of another mass shooting, this time by an employee who decided to murder as many people as he had, uh, as he could, people he'd worked with for years. As of uh, this writing, the uh, media, the murderer rather, a toll is 12 people. Every American asks why. What was the killer's motive? When we read there is no known motive, we're frustrated. Human beings want to make sense of life, especially of evil. Liberals in the, the regard, liberals view are essentially as the same as leftists in this regard, he says, are virtually united in ascribing these motives to or these shootings to guns. Just this past weekend in a speech in Brazil, former President Barack Obama told the audience, our gun laws in the United States don't make much sense. Anybody can buy any weapon anytime without much, if any, regulation. They can buy guns over the Internet. They can buy machine guns, end quote. That the former president fabricated a series of falsehoods about the United 
United States and maligned on foreign soil the country that twice elected him president speaks to his character and to the character of the American news media that have been completely silent about these falsehoods. But the main point here is that, like other liberals and leftists, when Obama addresses the subject of mass shootings in Brazil, he had been talking about the children murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012. He talks about guns. Yet America had plenty of guns when its uh, mass murder rate was much lower. Grant Dew, a Ph.D. in criminology and director of research and evaluation at the Minnesota Department of Corrections, gathered data going back 100 years in his 2007 book, Mass Murder in the United States, A History. And his data reveals in the 20th century, every decade before the 1970s had fewer than 10 mass public shootings. In the 50s, for example, there was one mass shooting. And then a steep rise began. In the 1960s, there were six mass shootings. In the 70s, the number rose to 13. In the 80s, the number increased two and a half times to 32. And it rose again in the 90s to 42. As of this century, the New York Times reported in 2014 that according to the FBI, mass shootings have risen drastically in the past half dozen years. Well, given the same ubiquity of guns, wouldn't the most productive question be what, if anything, has changed since the 60s and the 70s? Of course it would, and a great deal has changed. America is much more ethnically diverse, much less religious. Boys have far fewer male role models in their lives. Fewer men marry, and normal boy behavior is largely held in contempt by their feminist teachers, principals, and therapists. Do any or all of those factors matter more than the availability of guns? Let's briefly investigate each factor. Regarding ethnic diversity, the countries that not only have the fewest mass murders but the <clears throat> lowest homicide rate is real as well are the least ethnically diverse, such as Japan and nearly all European countries. So, too, the, Ameri- the American states that have homicide rates at uh, low as uh, Western European countries are the least ethnically and racially diverse. The four lowest are New Hampshire, North Dakota, Maine, and Idaho. Now, America, being the most ethnically and racially diverse country in the world, could still have low homicide rates if uh, Americans, uh, A, were Americanized, but the left has... Um, hyphenated, balkanized, if you will, Americans, and B, most black males grew up with fathers. Regarding religiosity, the left welcomes, indeed seeks, the end of Christianity in America, though not of Islam, whose robust uh, robustness it fosters. Why don't we ask a simple question? What percentage of American murderers attend church each week? Regarding boys needing a father, in 2008, then-Senator Obama told an audience, children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty, uh, commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of schools, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. Yet the Times has published columns and studies showing how relatively unimportant fathers are, and more and more educated women believe this dangerous nonsense. Then there is marriage. Nearly all men who murder are single, and their numbers are increasing. Finally, since the 1960s, we've been living in a culture of grievance, whereas in the past, people generally understood that life is hard and or they have to work on themselves to improve their lives. For a half a century, the left has drummed into Americans' minds that belief that their difficulties are caused by American society, in particular at sexism, racism, and patriarchy, and the more aggrieved people are, the more dulled their conscience When you don't ask intelligent questions, you cannot come up with intelligent answers. So then, with regard to murder in America, until Americans stop allowing the left to ask questions, to ask the questions, we will have no intelligent answers. I don't agree with all of the conclusions that he draws. I do think fatherlessness plays a significant role. Certainly our culture is um, fascinated with violence in entertainment and in virtually every other form that occupies our 
leisure time. But it is an interesting thought that we ought to ask uh, different questions that may also inform our understanding of why the epidemic of these kinds of shootings and mass shootings in particular occur. When you look back over the 20th century, the availability of firearms and the um, escalation over the last uh, decade or so. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Donald Trump's administration announced today that it will no longer allow federal funding for medical research conducted within the National Institutes of Health that involves the use of human fetal tissue of aborted babies. The NIH is an organization within the Department of Health and Human Services, and they estimate it spends about 103 million taxpayer dollars purchasing and experimenting on human fetal tissue in fiscal year 2018. Well, the administration also canceled a multi-million dollar contract with the University of California, San Francisco, that causes uh, that uses rather fetal tissue to test new HIV treatments. The UCSF contract, which was due to expire today after the Trump administration granted a 90 day extension, cancels more than one hundred million dollars in federal funding for research projects that use fetal tissue. As part of the new restrictions, Department of Health and Human Services said it is conducting a comprehensive review view of all research involving fetal tissue. HHS also said it's going to impose ethics reviews on government-funded research at the universities and other scientific centers that propose to use fetal tissue. Promoting the dignity of human life from conception to natural death is one of the very top priorities of this administration, HHS said in a statement. Well, in September of last year, the Health and Human Services terminated a contract between Advanced Bioscience Resources, Inc., and the Food and Drug Administration that provided human fetal tissue from elective abortions to develop testing protocols. Well, the department wasn't sufficiently assured that contract included the appropriate protections applicable to fetal tissue research or met all other procurement requirements. As a result, Health and Human Services also initiated a comprehensive review of all of their research involving human fetal tissue from elective abortions to ensure consistency with statutes and regulations governing such research and to ensure the adequacy of procedures and oversight of this research in light of the serious regulatory, moral and ethical considerations involved. When the audit and review began, Health and Human Services had an existing contract with UCSF. University of California, San Francisco, regarding research involving human fetal tissue from elective abortions. Health and Human Services has been extending the uh, contract by means of 90-day extensions while conducting its audit and review. Now, current um, extramural research projects, research conducted outside of National Institutes of Health and universities that are funded by uh, the organization grants, will be affected during this currently approved project period for new Extramural research grant applications or current research projects in the competitive uh, renewal process, generally every five years, that propose to use fetal tissue from elective abortions and that are recommended for potential funding, it's two-level uh, scientific review process. An ethics advisory board is going to be convened to review the research proposal and recommend whether, in light of the ethical considerations, they should fund the research project pursuant to a law passed by Congress. Well, Health and Human Services is also going to undertake changes to its regulations, rather, and the National Institutes of Health grant policy to adopt or strengthen safeguards and program integrity requirements um, uh, for these uh, research uh, projects involving human fetal tissue will also be reviewed. 
It's very encouraging that the administration continues to unveil the unethical and immoral profit that uh, is being made from aborted baby parts. Matt Staver, who's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council, says every human life is precious and should not be sacrificed as an experiment. These despicable acts by organizations and companies underscore why our client Sandra Merritt should be applauded for revealing the seedy underbelly of Planned Parenthood. And as we mentioned earlier this week, she and her colleague are facing felony charges for that work. Uh, Liberty Council um, uh, is defending Sandra Merritt uh, against 15 felony charges brought by the attorneys general from uh, California to punish her for the undercover work as one of the journalists who produced the videos that exposed Planned Parenthood's unethical and potentially unlawful profiteering from the sale of aborted baby body parts. Um, But that has... um, changed under these uh, this new rule. Well, the Illinois Senate voted 34 to 20 last Friday to pass a bill that's even more extreme than New York's infanticide bill, the Reproductive Health Act. That's the name of it, the Reproductive Health Act. Uh, repeals the state's ban on partial birth abortion. It allows abortion through 9 months, requires insurance companies to provide coverage through 9 months. Uh, Democrat Governor JB Pritzker, who had uh, campaign to make Illinois the most progressive state in the country for abortion, hugged and congratulated supporters of the bill on the Senate floor after the vote. Pritzker has vowed to sign it into law. It uh, is Senate Bill 25. It strips all rights from unborn children, changes the definition of viability, and legalizes abortion through all nine months of pregnancy up to the moment of birth for any reason. Now, just take a moment. I don't want to just brush past that. Abortions through all nine months of pregnancy up to the moment of birth for any reason. The bill eliminates the Abortion Performance Refusal Act so that uh, medical professionals will be forced to uh, recommend, perform, or assist in abortion procedures. No conscience exception. The legislation also compels insurance plans to provide coverage for abortion care, as they call it, abortion care. And uh, all licensing requirements for abortion facilities would be removed. Senate Bill 25 repeals the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act and removes any penalty for performing late-term abortions, allows nurses to perform medication abortions, eliminates licensing and health and safety inspections of abortion clinics. It also eliminates waiting periods, spousal and parental consent. Minors would be able to obtain abortions without parental notice, and parents would be forced to pay for it, even if they objected and did not consent to the abortion. The bill's sponsors, Democrat Representative Kelly Cassidy, said this is treating abortion care like any other health care. Health care. Well, the truth is abortion isn't like any other health care. Matt Staver went on to say these are horrific days when Illinois lawmakers celebrate eliminating all protections for unborn children, allowing infanticide, removing conscience protection laws for health care workers and allowing minors to freely obtain abortions without parental notification or consent. This has nothing to do with health care. This is a crime against humanity. Yet, tragically, the governor brags about it and it will be the law in that state. Meanwhile, Lois Anderson uh, writes that we just received notice, and I uh, received this uh, yesterday, just received notice that Senate Bill 579 is scheduled for a hearing and possibly work session in the Oregon House Rules Committee today. If you would like to come join uh, in the opposition to the bill, the hearing will be um, at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Now, the hearing is probably taking place now or may have 
uh, concluded by now, but I would encourage you to communicate with lawmakers because whether or not the hearing is ongoing or if the hearing is concluded, decisions are going to be made with regard to its status moving forward. I would encourage you to do a couple of things. You can certainly pray for those who are in positions of authority to make decisions about um, uh, how this practice is going to be carried out here in the uh, in the state of Oregon. And again, we're, we're talking about Senate Bill 579, which is uh, scheduled for a hearing today. Uh, and I would also encourage you to communicate with uh, lawmakers uh, about uh, this bill. Now, it is possible that it's going to be sent to the House floor at the conclusion of the session. It's also uh, it has already passed in the Senate. If we lose at this level, it goes to the governor who will undoubtedly sign it, eliminating the waiting period for those near death committing physician assisted suicide. It's a very dangerous piece of legislation as people with malicious intent could pressure extremely vulnerable people into killing themselves. Euthanasia de facto. Uh, So, again, speaking up, speaking out uh, multiplies uh, the impact that uh, pro-life community can have, and it also multiplies um, uh, the opportunity and impact for lawmakers to consider uh, the full weight uh, and the moral implications of the decision they are uh, pondering in the House. And again, we're talking about Senate Bill 579. The hearing uh, was in or is in hearing room C at the Oregon State Capitol at 3 o'clock p.m. We don't know if it's ongoing, if it's concluded Uh, But again, it's also possible at the end of the session that this will go before the full House. And we're being asked to communicate with lawmakers to contact our representative. While it's Senate Bill 579, it's already passed in the Senate. It's now in the Oregon House Rules Committee. And uh, communicating with those lawmakers is uh, what we can do at this point and also pray for wisdom um, and that this bill would fail in protection of those who are most vulnerable. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I want to start with a, a controversy that has erupted, and it's all about prayer. Now, how controversial is prayer? The question really centers on for whom should we pray? Are there people who are so contemptible that we should not consider them worthy of prayer? And what is prayer exactly? Is it a, an incantation in which we uh, simply utter words that will result in their success or failure? Or is it a, a humble appeal to a sovereign God who invites us into his presence and to make petition and prayer? And in fact, uh, tells us that we are to do so on behalf of leaders. And during the time that that, um, that command, if you will, was made, this was not a time in which people were voting for their uh, officials. They were not elected officials. They were not people who shared a worldview uh, that was consistent with their own. Many suffered under the leadership of the very individuals they were charged with praying for. And yet in the 21st century, a controversy has erupted over a pastor praying for a president. Um, Ed Stetzer, who uh, writes for Christianity Today and represents Southern Baptists, Uh, points out that the outrage against David Platt for praying for President Trump reveals more about us than it does about David. Well, let me tell you what happened um, and what the the big brouhaha is all about and how we ought to think about prayer in the scripture that urges us to pray for those who are in positions of authority. Now, as Christianity Today reported, David Platt didn't publicly sign on to Franklin Graham's Day of Prayer for the President. 
He's not a member of uh, his White House faith advisors. He did not endorse the president. He is not known for weighing in on day-to-day political happenings. This is an apolitical um, pastor who has some influence. But yesterday afternoon, I think it was probably earlier than that now, but um, the other day when the president made a surprise visit to McLean Bible Church, the D.C. area mega church where Platt has served as teaching pastor for the past two years, the Southern Baptist preacher prayed for him from the stage. Now, this was an unplanned, spontaneous decision on the part of the president to show up at the, the church. Now, let me tell you what didn't happen. The president didn't take to the platform. He was not given the podium. He did not speak to the congregation. Uh, he was not applauded. He was not invited uh, to take part in the service in any way. The pastor prayed for the president. Well, Platt cited First Timothy 2, and my understanding is that has not been rescinded from Scripture in the 21st century under the Trump administration. So the pastor cited First Timothy 2, the, past, the passage rather that Franklin Graham used in his call for churches to pray for the president that day as he put his arms around the president and offered a two and a half minute prayer. Now, what pastor has the audacity to pray for a president? Now, in praying for the president, is that a, a sign of endorsement? Is that evidence that the pastor agrees with the Um, decisions made by the president or the leadership of the administration? Or is it simply a pastor carrying out what 1 Timothy 2 says we ought to do, whether or not we agree with a president? We pray that he would look to you, this is the prayer by Pastor Platt, for the president. We pray that he would look to you. Now stop and think for a moment, how offensive is that? We pray that he would look to you. Isn't it in the best interest of every man everywhere, whether or not they have a position of authority, to look to God in whatever their hands are called to do? That he would trust you. Okay, is there offense there? That he would learn, lean on you. Is there an offense there? That he would govern and make decisions in ways that are good for justice, good for righteousness, good for equity, every good path. Now, just pause for a moment. Think, what, what was offensive about that part of the prayer? Well, the former International Mission Board president and radical author, that's the title of his book, said, Lord, we pray that you would give him all the grace he needs to govern in ways that we just saw in First Timothy 2 that lead to peace and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. So he prayed according to First Timothy chapter 2. He didn't pray about his immigration initiative. He didn't pray about the economy. He didn't pray about Brexit. He didn't pray about tariffs. He didn't mention other world leaders. He didn't praise him for the job that he's doing. He didn't criticize him for the job that he's doing because, quite frankly, Pastor Platt wasn't talking to um, Donald Trump. He wasn't really even talking about him. He was praying for him. And it seems to me This president, and for that matter, every member of Congress, is in desperate need of prayer. Well, Platt said in a letter to his congregation that he didn't learn of the president's visit until after he preached the sermon minutes before uh, the two took the stage together. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations that we didn't see coming, and we're faced with a decision in a moment when uh, we don't have the liberty of deliberation, so we do our best to glorify God. 
Well, Platt asked that Trump would be granted grace, mercy, and wisdom, that he would know God's love and that Christ died for his sins. In other words, that he would come to saving faith, that his family would be blessed, and that um, other leaders in the government would likewise be guided by God's wisdom. Again, is there a fence in that? Can you pray that prayer for someone you agree with as well as someone with whom you have disagreements? Well, the president's visit hadn't been publicly announced prior to attending the service in the uh, Tyson's area of northern Virginia. One of a dozen Sunday services McLean Bible Church holds across its six locations. At the afternoon gathering in its largest and flagship location, Trump came in khakis, a blue blazer, a golf hat, after a morning round of golf at his club in Sterling, Virginia, according to The Hill. One White House statement linked his visit to prayer for Friday's shooting in Virginia Beach, but it was not mentioned during Platt's prayer, and the church is located a few hours away. And, of course, there wasn't a conversation between uh, Pastor Platt and the president as to what motivated him to come, so it wouldn't have been mentioned in the prayer. The night before, the president tweeted to thank Franklin Graham, a vocal supporter of the president. Platt is not that, saying, we will stick together and win. Uh, Last week, about the uh, evangelist uh, campaign to pray for the president, This past Sunday, uh, Christian leaders were asked about Paul's instruction to petition for all those in authority in 1 Timothy 2. Several fellow, or I should say several Southern Baptists applauded Platt's prayer, including former Southern Baptist President Steve Gaines. And of course, this is in that um, denomination. The Gospel Coalition's Joe Carter called it a model for how we can and should pray for our presidents. But Platt himself noted that some in the church had valid reasons to be hurt by his decision to pray for him during the service. Now, what valid reasons might there have been? Platt is in an interesting position. For years, he's preached against the American focus on self-advancement, self-esteem, self-sufficiency, individualism, materialism, universalism. And now he's the pastor of a suburban Washington congregation full of Christians who work on the Hill, a place once deemed a holy destination for GOP senators and Bush aides. We worship under the banner, not a, of a country, but under the banner of a king. That's king uh, that king's name is definitely not Donald Trump. It's not um, Ronald Reagan. It's not George Bush. Uh, he told McLean Bible Church in a sermon last 4th of July weekend. It wasn't Barack Obama. It wasn't George Bush. It wasn't Bill Clinton. And for that matter, it wasn't George Washington either. Our king's name is, all, uh, is and always has been and always will be Jesus Christ. Well, a former White House staffer who wrote a tell-all about his 500 extraordinary days with the administration had attended the church. He said in an interview at, on um, Ed Stetzer's uh, blog, The Exchange, that he suggested Platt be invited to a White House prayer breakfast, but Platt worried about the baggage. When pastors get involved in the political space in a public way, there are drawbacks, and it can put pastors in a position where people suddenly view them through a political lens. He has opted not to do that. But the president of the United States walked into the church. It was unplanned, unannounced, and the pastor doing what he is called to do to shepherd. He chose to pray for the president. He didn't pray about his political agenda. He didn't pray that he would be successful in all the things that have come to his mind and are his priorities. But rather, he prayed that the president of the United States would submit to the authority of God, that he would come to know Jesus as the son of God, whose life was given in order that he might be reconciled to God He uh, prayed that the the president would recognize his need for a savior. Uh, That seems altogether appropriate to me. And for there to be a controversy around uh, that kind of praying, again, as um, Ed Stetzer put it, says a lot more about us than it does about Pastor uh, David Platt. Um, I think I need to take a break. Is that right, Uh, 
James. Okay, I'm going to take a quick break and uh, just want to finish up on this and kind of let you know what's coming up next week as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I've been talking about uh, Pastor David Platt who um, was surprised that the president um, showed up at his church. He took some time to pray according to Scripture over the president. Again, it wasn't a political prayer. It didn't have to do with his political agenda, his success or failure, but rather prayed for him as someone, um, as we are told in Second uh, Timothy, we ought to pray for those in authority. Ed Stetzer, observing all of this, writes, In years past, this would probably have been seen um, by many as an admirable practice. The president stopped by for prayer. However, as Emma Green explained in The Atlantic, Donald Trump's controversial stop at a Virginia megachurch after a mass shooting showed how even normal Christian behavior has been scrutinized during this administration. Yet this is a different time, and as most would agree, President Trump is a different kind of president. Four things come to mind when we think about the situation. First, the criticism of David Platt, who simply prayed as a pastor over a leader, was often not fair. He writes, I was frustrated at the armchair quarterbacking I saw online, with some saying that he should uh, prophetically have rebuked the president, others saying he should have denied the request, and still others wishing that he'd been more affirming of the president. It seemed to me he struck the right balance. He tweeted, and this is Stetzer, I know that every person tweeting criticism of uh, at Platt David would have handled it so much better uh, if the president had showed up to your place with little notice, but maybe just consider that he is not as smart, godly, or prophetic as you are and try to extend grace to your lesser brother. Simply put, David Platt made a fast decision when the president came by. To condemn him for that is simply not appropriate. He basically had two choices, either honor the request or not. Platt could have chosen to decline the visit. This would have inevitably led to attacks from Trump supporters, a public outcry over a pastor refusing to pray for the president and questioning of his personal position on the president. Instead, he chose the second option and in his eyes sought the model what he saw in scripture about praying for those in authority. Yes, he could have prayed behind the scenes. Yes, he could have refused to have the president on stage. To some, he should have thought all of that out. Uh, in those few minutes he had while the president of the United States was asking for something else. But let's give David Platt the benefit of the doubt. He's earned it. He did what he thought was right at that moment. There are no parameters when it comes to who we pray for, and we are specifically commanded to pray for our leaders. Jesus commanded us all to pray for even our enemies. We can debate if that prayer should have been on the stage, but perhaps we can uh, agree that we pray when we ask, uh, we pray when asked. Either way, Uh, Be glad you don't have to consider a global news-making decision in a few moments between services and have a little charity for those who do. Secondly, David's prayer was gospel-rich and God-honoring. Yes, I know that some people think Platt should have prayed some sort of prophetic rebuke. Others thought he should have uh, thanked God for President Trump as a modern-day Cyrus. Still others wanted him to uh, pray as if the president was some towering paragon of faith. Now, the interesting thing is we oftentimes think our prayers are directed toward the person for whom we pray. It's not as if God doesn't know Donald Trump and all of his faults and where he's wrong and what he needs to change. And uh, we're praying. It's not a conversation that's intended to be overheard for the sake of kind of informing the public. It's a conversation for the individual to God on behalf of the person. And in in many cases, uh, the sinner. And it seems to me it was altogether appropriate. The fact is, Anglican churches pray for the president every week. If you don't want to hear the name of the president, don't be an Anglican. He is the president. We are commanded to pray for him. You might debate the options. More on that uh, later. But uh, thankful for a prayer that is biblical and doesn't 
cross any of the uh, the lines as inappropriate. Third, David Platt is not some naive political pawn. Watching Platt uh, be caricatured by critics and defenders of the president was a disorienting experience for anyone who knows him. In the midst of this, um, again, uh, <clears throat> writes the author of the Christianity Today article, Ed Stetzer, uh, in the midst of this, I was reminded of a story from my early interview with a former Trump staffer, Cliff Sims. When we were trying to plan the first prayer breakfast, Sarah Sanders and I were working together to organize speakers and wanted David Platt to come. I talked to David about it, and I don't think he would mind me saying that he was conflicted about the decision. I think one of the reasons for this hesitation was because when pastors get involved in political space in a public way, there are drawbacks, and it can put pastors in a position where people suddenly view them through a political lens. I happened to mention uh, this to Paula White. Paula came to the White House and had a meeting with them and basically trashed David and said something to the effect of he believes that the American dream is evil. The president's going to be really mad when he finds out that you're bringing uh, someone to speak at the prayer breakfast who believes that the American dream is evil. Well, again, this is the inner fighting uh, within the church. Well, in light of these statements, I was a bit surprised to see this was the church where the president stopped to receive prayer. And this is the pastor who had been something of a critic of some of the basic tenets, political and otherwise, of, <clears throat> of Washington and the American uh, way of life. This is the same David Platt who has called people, um, uh, call for people to give up the American dream and pursue God's mission. While saying he believes this is uh, evil is a bit of a stretch, he does call Christians to something greater. This is the place the president chose uh, to stop and ask for prayer. So that's sort of an interesting question and perhaps more interesting than the nature of the prayer um, itself. Why choose that place um, when everything about your life as a civilian and as a politician uh, runs counter to the very priorities that uh, Pastor Platt has championed? In any event, I think it's an opportunity for us to think about uh, what it means to say that we are to pray for our enemies, that we are to pray for those who are in positions of leadership, spoken at a time when the leaders that uh, Jesus um, was calling them to pray for uh, were not selected. They were not um, righteous leaders. They were people with whom uh, they suffered greatly, or I should say under whom they suffered greatly. And as Christians, we need to consider what the scriptures say far more than the political implications of which side we happen to fall on uh, with regard to expressions of faith in the public square. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Lee Eckloff. He's the author of Feels Like Home, How Rediscovering the Church's Family Changes Everything. So I hope you'll join us. I want to thank James Blinn for producing and engineering a portion of today's program and Clark Hilton for engineering the bulk of today's program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.